Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to the Science of Success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than a million downloads and listeners in over a hundred countries. In this episode, we discuss the relationship between bad ideas and creative genius. We look at the three biggest lessons from studying the most successful hedge fund on earth. We talk about why a complete stranger may often be a better judge of your abilities than you are. We examine the key things that stand in the way of developing more self-awareness and how you can fix them. Look at why it's so important to invest in the ability to make better decisions and much more with our guest, Dr. Adam Grant. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should join our email list today by going to successpodcast.com and signing up right on the homepage. There's some amazing stuff that's only available to our email subscribers, so be sure to sign up, check out the email list as soon as possible. First, you're going to get an awesome free guide that we created based on listener demand. This is our most popular guide. It's called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free along with another surprise bonus guide when you sign up and join the email list today. Next, you're going to get a curated weekly email from us every single Monday called Mindset Monday. Listeners have been loving this email. It's short, simple, filled with interesting articles and insights, things we found fascinating within the last week. Lastly, you're going to get an exclusive chance to shape the show. You can vote on guests, help us change our intro music, parts of the show, even submit your own personal questions to our guests, and much more. You can sign up by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage, or if you're out and about, if you're on the go, if you're driving around right now, just text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. That's SMARTER to 44222. In our previous episode, 
We approach the concept of the self from a concrete and scientific perspective, not in an abstract or philosophical way. What do the hard sciences like biology and physics say about the existence of the self? Does the self exist from a psychological perspective? What does the science say and what does it mean for ourselves, our future, and how we think about change and self-improvement? We explore the scientific search for the self with our guest, Dr. Robert Levine. If you want to discover who you truly are, listen to that episode. Now for the show. Today, we have another amazing guest on the show, Dr. Adam Grant. Adam has been Wharton's top-rated professor for six straight years and has been named to Fortune's 40 Under 40, as well as one of the world's 10 most influential management speakers. He's the multi-bestselling author of Give and Take, Originals, and Option B, which have been translated in over 35 languages. His work's been featured on Oprah, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and he's the host of a new TED podcast called Work Life. Adam, welcome to The Science of Success. Thanks, Matt. Delighted to be here. Well, we're very excited to have you on the show today. Huge fans of your work and, and, and your ideas, me and Austin. So we're really thrilled to have you on here. I'd love to start out with a topic we talk a lot about on the show and, and something you wrote recently about in The Atlantic, which is self-awareness and, and how people often don't really understand self-awareness or think that they're a lot more self-aware than they are. Could you kind of share with the thesis of that article and, and what it was about? Well, I love getting to talk to an audience that's as fascinated by psychology and the evidence behind it as I am. So this is a, this is a real treat. I think that, you know, what, what's striking to me is that it, pretty much as long as I've been a psychologist, I've, I've gotten the reaction from people, well, wait, wait a minute, what, what, what could you possibly know about me that I don't? I, I own my own mind. And at some point I started, I started thinking about that and you know, kind of pushing back and saying, well, you know, you, you own a car and you might even be the only one who drives it, but that doesn't mean when, you know, the engine stops working that you know what to do going under the hood to fix it. And I think that, you know, there, there are two things that stand in the way of self-awareness as, as I've read more and more of the research on it. One is, you know, just basic blind spots. We have blind spots because there are things that other people can see that we can't because we're stuck inside our own heads. And so we have all this backstage access to what's going on internally, but we can't see, you know, independently with, from an outside view, what our behavior looks like. And what that means is that, you know, psychologically, we're better judges than our friends and then definitely than strangers of our internal state. So how anxious am I, for example? But we're much worse at judging our external behaviors, the parts of our personality that other people can see clearly, like how assertive am I, for example? And... Then the other sort of big self-awareness challenge is, is not just blind spots, which are the things that we can't see, but also biases, the things that we don't want to see. So we're motivated to, you know, to have a positive image of ourselves. And there's this really cool research by uh, Samin Vizier, a psychologist, who was trying to break down, you know, when are we better judges of our own personality versus when are other people more accurate than we are? And so what she did was she had people rate themselves on a whole bunch of personality descriptions. And then also some, uh, some traits like intelligence and creativity. And then she had their friends rate them. She got four of their friends to do it. And she also had some complete strangers interact with them for about eight minutes over pizza. And then they made judgments too. And then she went and actually tested them on all these traits. So she measured their assertiveness, for example, by putting them in a leaderless group discussion and then coding the videotape to see who dominated the conversation and who you know, was a little bit more hesitant. She gave them an IQ test to gauge their intelligence. 
she gave them a creativity challenge where you could actually measure how many ideas people generated and how novel they are with, you know, within the group. And so she does all of this. And then what she's able to show is that our, the blind spots are, are pretty clearly in, you know, these external domains. So people were worse than their friends at judging their own assertiveness. But in the internal domains, they were better. When, you know, when they rated their own anxiety versus their friends rated it, they did a better job than their friends did at predicting how nervous they would be giving a public speech when there was, there was an evaluator watching, not smiling, and they were being recorded. But then there's, there's another dimension beyond just the, the internal sort of external blind spot issue, and that's the bias issue. So people turned out to be terrible at judging their own intelligence and their own creativity because we all want to think of ourselves as smart and creative. And so people tended to be overconfident. And that was especially true among men in the study. I guess you could call it male pattern blindness or something like that. So, you know, I think the, the big lesson here is that anytime a trait is hard to see for us and easy to see for others. Sorry, I'll say that again. I think the, the big lesson here is that anytime a trait is easy for other people to see or hard for us to admit, we can't trust our own judgment of it. And you had a great phrase in that article that, that I think kind of underscored this point, which is you, you, you said that human blind spots are predictable. Can you elaborate on that and kind of explain how that ties into this? I guess, you know, I, I lived a lot of my life thinking that I had different blind spots from everyone else I knew. And that, you know, how clearly you could see yourself depended on whether you were surrounded by people who, you know, who, who were willing to tell you the truth, basically. And what, I think what, what psychologists have discovered, which I find so interesting, is that actually most people have the same kinds of blind spots. And, you know, it, it, it tends to be those things that you, you can't see because you're stuck inside your own head. And I guess I first figured this out when I was teaching negotiations. I would have uh, some, you know, MBA students and executives who negotiated like sharks and they lost trust. And then others who were just major people pleasers and they were too accommodating and they, they failed to stand up for themselves. And I would have them negotiate and then I'd give them feedback. I'd have their counterparts give them feedback and they'd always un undercorrect. And finally, I just, I just decided, you know what, I'm going to videotape them. And I'd sit down and watch the tapes with them. And they, they were just horrified. <laughs> they'd say, is that, what, is that what people have been seeing for years? Is that, is that really how I come across? And, you know, it's kind of like hearing your own voice on tape for the first time. And, you know, it, I, I really didn't even need to say anything after that. Because once they could, they could observe the behavior from an outside view, they were, they were often much more, they, they were much more prepared to, to correct it. And they were motivated to correct it because they got it. And I think that that's something we should all be in the habit of doing, right? Is, you know, if you're an athlete, you'd review the game tape after every single competition. I know in, uh, I used to be a springboard diver, and in my diving days in high school and college, I would watch videos of every practice and meet in slow motion, because it was one thing to have my coach tell me, you know, what, what he was seeing. It was a whole other thing for me to see it myself. And then, you know, very frequently, <laughs> I wouldn't argue back as much. I'd just go and do it. So uh, I think that's, that's one way that, you know, that, that we can spot those pattern blind spots, or I should say that differently. So if you want to recognize your, you know, your blind spots, the patterns are, they're the things that you can't see from inside. And, you know, often a videotape or an audio tape helps make those visible. So I, I love that idea. And I think feedback, you know, if you look at something like deliberate practice or just, you know, improving, growing in general, feedback is such a vital component of that. 
How do we, I think it's really clear in a field like sports or, you know, maybe a competitive activity like chess or gambling or something like that, or poker specifically, but in a field like business that, you know, there's a much kind of murkier connection between action and output. How do we tighten those feedback loops or kind of get the game tape, quote unquote, so that we can get that feedback and help spot our blind spots? Well, that, that was one of the things that I wanted to, to understand when I launched this podcast with Ted. So the, the vision behind work life was I would invite myself into organizations that go to the extreme on something that we all either struggle with or are curious to master, to, excuse me, something that we all struggle with or are curious to learn more about and, and try to master. And so for feedback, I went to Bridgewater, the, the hedge fund that's been named the most successful in the world, where they do videotape and audio tape every meeting and, and conversation with a few exceptions. And, you know, at first I thought it was going to be Big Brother. And, you know, very quickly, you know, I, I walked in and I'm being videotaped and audio taped. And after a few minutes, I forgot. And sort of the, the real me came out. And Ray, Ray Dalio, the founder, <laughs> pointed out that he thinks it's a lot like what it must feel like to be on reality TV, where, you know, any, anytime you're, you're sitting in, at home watching, you're like, how do these people not realize that their behavior is being broadcast? They would never act that way. And, you know, the answer is you just, you can't be on self-monitoring or evaluating all the time. And so Bridgewater was a really cool place to understand these dynamics because they, they believe so much in radical transparency. And one of their principles is that no one has the right to hold a critical opinion without speaking up about it. And so, you know, the, the insight I walked away with is I was thinking about networks wrong, or at least I, I had my view of, my view of networks was incomplete. I, I guess I've, you know, I've, I've read a ton of research on the value of support networks. We know that, that if you have mentors and sponsors, your career is more likely to advance. We also know that peer support in the workplace is about as important as, you know, as support from above. And yet, when we get criticized, we make the mistake of going to our cheerleaders. And we lean on the people who encourage us, which is great for motivation. But we need another group of people, and that's what Bridgewater is so good at, at trying to build. I've come to call it a challenge network. You know, the support network is the people who build you up when you're down. The challenge network is the group of people who tell you you're not there yet, right? Who, who push you because they really care about helping you get better. And you know, as I watched this happen at Bridgewater, I was, I was thinking about some research that, that Jim Westfall and his colleagues did on, uh, on what happens to CEOs when their firms underperform. So they surveyed hundreds of CEOs and they, they want to know basically when, you know, when your company's performance is objectively bad, what do you do? And they found that on average, what most CEOs do is they then lean on their support network, which are their friends who are, are in very similar jobs in very similar industries, in very similar companies, and they ignore their naysayers and their dissenters who, you know, usually have a fresher point of view, who might be, you know, not sort of drinking the same Kool-Aid or stuck inside the same bubble as them. And the more that they do that, the worse their company's performance gets. So, you know, they, they end up sort of thinking inside the inner circle when they need to be going outside that circle. And of course, that's more pronounced. There's, there's subsequent research showing that if you're a narcissist, you're at greater risk for doing that. So narcissists are especially likely to, uh, to ignore objective sort of failure signals from the market. And they're more drawn to, uh, to social praise. And they're more likely to, you know, to fall victim to, to flattery from, you know, the yes men or the brown nosers who surround them. And, you know, I think we've, we've all been in that situation. Uh, Francesca Gino did some studies on this where she asked people to, you know, to just 
identify the colleagues that they went to for feedback and then rate, you know, how much are they, they encouraging and praising you versus criticizing and challenging you. And then she followed up a few minutes later to find out what, excuse me, she followed up a few months later to find out what, what happened to these, these relationships. And she found that, that just like those underperforming CEOs, that what most people would do is they went out of their way to avoid their critics. So if in the last six months, somebody has given you really harsh feedback, you've done everything in your power to drop them from your life. And you know, in the short run, that might feel good. It might help with your motivation, but it destroys your opportunity to learn. And I think we all need to embrace that challenge network if we want to reach our potential. How do we open ourselves up to that challenging feedback and kind of fight back against that natural tendency to, you know, shoot the messenger for, for lack of a better term? Well, my, my favorite research on this, hands down, <laughs> comes from, I guess, the, the, the literature on self-affirmation. So Claude Steele at Stanford kicked it off several decades ago. Sherman and Cohen have, have done a, a nice review in the last decade or so. And the idea is that it's way easier to take criticism in one domain when we've been praised in another. And so as long as we have this tendency to, you know, to sort of gravitate toward the people who, you know, who kind of give us positive reinforcement, we might as well use that to our advantage and say, okay, anytime I'm going to seek out criticism or somebody reaches out to let me know that they're about to give me some negative feedback, what I can do is I can, I can buffer myself against the blow of that by looking for some positive feedback in a completely separate domain. So if, if I'm about to get feedback on, you know, on a creative project I've just worked on, what I want to do is I want to first go and, and figure out, okay, what are completely unrelated things that I've done well lately? And so I might review a good decision I made in the past few weeks. I might go and, uh, and check, check my calendar and see that I've actually been you know, extra productive and I've, I've cleared some things off my to-do list. And once I've affirmed a skill or a value or an achievement in a different domain, now when I come into this creative project, I'm much less likely to, to see that as the heart of my identity. And so it's less crushing than when somebody tells me that you know, my creativity was, was really, really, really poor in this particular project and it, you know, it seemed totally unoriginal. And you know, I think that obviously we can do this as feedback givers, not just receivers. So many people love to dish out a feedback sandwich and say, let me praise you and then I'll, I'll criticize you and then I'll praise you again. So we get to start and end on a high note, which, you know, it's just the feedback sandwich does not taste as good as it looks if you look at the research because one, you know, people don't trust the praise when it comes first. They're waiting for the other shoe to drop and they, you know, they think you're just trying to butter them up. And then two, even if they do, primacy and recency effects are much stronger than, you know, whatever we might process in between. And so you're more likely to remember the first and last things that happen than the middle. And that means that the, the praise on both ends might drown out the criticism. So what I always recommend to people instead is to say either just put the criticism on the table and then you can, you can end with some praise to, you know, or at least some encouragement about your confidence in the person or flip it and say, all right, I'm going to praise first, but I've got to make sure that's a separate realm. And then, you know, when I give the criticism, my hope is that, you know, you've, you've heard it a little bit more because, you know, you had something else, some other talent to fall back on to stake your ego or your self-esteem on. And uh, that, that tends to work much better than the alternative. You know, kind of a corollary of that and, and something that I think you touched on in the, in the interview with Ray Dalio was this kind of idea of believability weighted feedback and that, you know, feedback varies based on how credible the person giving it to you is and sort of the idea that 
not all feedback is equal. How can we implement that when we're thinking about feedback from colleagues, friends, et cetera, and looking at ways to improve ourselves? That's that's such an interesting question. You know, one of the things that I love at Bridgewater is that they think that democracy is a dumb idea for running a company. Because, you know, not you, the whole idea of democracy is that every person's opinion or vote has equal weight. And their point is that in a workplace, it, it doesn't and it shouldn't, right? There's, there's a reason that we promote people because, you know, we, we trust their decision-making skills or they've demonstrated, you know, a particular level of expertise in a certain domain. But Bridgewater also doesn't allow the people who have risen to power to, you know, to drive every decision and every piece of feedback. What they want to do is they want to know... In, they have 77 different domains where they, they have people rate each other regularly, and they want to know, okay, how credible are you in this domain? Because, you know, you might be really great at, uh, let's say, analyzing markets, but really terrible at analyzing human relationships or vice versa. And so instead of, you know, having an overall believability score, you get a domain-specific believability score, which is your track record of, of performance in that, in that domain, which is probably, you know at some level relevant to whether you're, let me say that differently, sorry. So you get a domain-specific believability score, which is more or less your probability of being right in this domain based on your track record in it in the past. And so, you know, I think if, if we wanted to, anybody who wanted to, to try to simulate that in your own life, I think what you do is you go around and you look at your feedback sources and you ask yourself two questions. The first one is, what is their track record in that domain? Have they demonstrated real expertise or competence in, you know, in the very skill you're asking for feedback on? The more they have, the more credible they tend to be. Uh, the ones who don't, I think, you know, are at, at serious risk for the Dunning-Kruger effect, you know, the unskilled and unaware of it, where, uh, where people who are novices often are the, the most overconfident, the most likely to overestimate their skill set. And so those are the people whose, you know, whose opinions you usually want to discount. And then the, the other question is, how well do they know you? I, I will never forget when I was in grad school, my first semester, I was, I was encouraged to seek out one professor who was supposed to be really good at, you know, big, big picture career advice. And so I emailed him, I cold emailed him and he wrote back and so he said, you know, happy to meet for coffee, send me your resume and, you know, we'll talk it over. And I sat down with him and he said, you are insane. You're doing four times more projects than you should be. And you got to cut 90% of this stuff or else you're never even going to graduate, let alone get a job. And, you know, I, I was sort of, at first I was, I was a little devastated because I thought, all right, this is, this is a guy who, you know, who has really excelled in this field. And so he has a lot of expertise. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized he didn't know a thing about me. It was the first time we'd met. He'd never seen any of my work. He didn't have a sense of my motivation or, or my abilities. And so, you know, how credible could he really be? And I decided that I was, I was going to make part of my, sort of my, my motivation in grad school day by day to prove Jim wrong. And, you know, I, I actually would, would wake up about once a week and think, okay, how do I prove to Jim that in fact, you know, I could do all these projects. And that became a little bit of extra source of fuel when, you know, when I got papers rejected or when I got negative feedback in the classroom to say, all right, yeah, this is not fun, but I still have to show Jim that, that I wasn't crazy. And, uh, you know, I think that, that that how well do they know you, how credible are, are they not just on, on, you know, on the field, but also on, on your work, to me, is a, is a critical set of questions. 
at your time and kind of your time with Ray and and the the work you did with Bridgewater, I'm curious, you know, they've obviously built a, a kind of a radically different organization, which in many ways has created radically different results for the, for for what they've done and and led them to be so successful. What what were kind of some of the simplest or most practical takeaways that you found that are kind of the let's say sort of an, from an 80/20 perspective, the easiest things to implement without, you know, completely upending the culture of an organization or, you know, the structure of your relationships? Yeah. So I'll, I'll give you, there were three things that, you know, that I've actually taken away and, and applied in other organizations that, you know, that I think that anybody could adopt pretty easily. The first one is that they, they really turn the idea of devil's, excuse me, they really turn the idea of devil's advocates upside down. So the, the research on this by Charlotte Nemes has been fascinating to me for a long time. What Charlotte has shown is that, you know, what, what most people do when they're trying to get a different opinion is they assign somebody in the room to play the role of devil's advocate. And when she gets groups together to make decisions and she randomly assigns, you know, one person to, to advocate for a minority view, not only does it not help on average, it makes the group more convinced of the majority opinion that they already liked. So it backfires. And when you, you break down why there, there's sort of two mechanisms at play. One is that the person is just playing a role so they don't take it seriously enough and they don't, they don't argue forcefully enough. And two, everybody else knows they're playing a role. And so, you know, the rest of the people in, in that room sit there and say, all right, now we've heard the, you know, the person playing devil's advocate, check, we can go right back to what we already believed. And they just all shoot down the argument pretty quickly. But of course, you do need dissenting opinions. And what Charlotte shows is that instead of assigning a devil's advocate, you want to unearth the devil's advocate find the genuine dissenter who authentically disagrees and invite that person into the conversation. And if you do that, the group's probability of, of making a good decision goes up. The person argues more passionately. The group you know, gives more weight to it because they know it's a real viewpoint. And so when I, you know, when I work with, with leaders on this, what I often hear for pushback is, but what if, what, you know, I get it. I wa- want to hear that person's voice, but what if they're wrong? What if I invite them into the conversation and they steer us in an unproductive direction? And I say good because, you know, it gives me more research to do. No, I say good because I am just so struck by the evidence that minority opinions improve decision-making and creativity even when they are incorrect. So when you hear an authentic dissenter speak up, even if it's not the right view, it stimulates divergent thinking instead of convergent thinking. And that means that the group is more likely to reevaluate the decision process, go back and gather new information, update their sense of what the criteria are. And that's good for, you know, for decision quality and for original thinking, even, you know, if it's not the right, right opinion to begin with. And so going back to Bridgewater, one of the things they do is when, when they have a, a big decision to make, they actually will run a poll. It's an anonymous poll at first, and they'll ask, okay, how many people think we should do A and how many people think we should do reverse A? And then they get a sense of the distribution in the room and then they will invite three of the authentic dissenters to, you know, to argue against three of the people who are, are supporting the decision. And I think that's such an effective way to, to surface the real dissent in the room and make sure it's valued and heard and you know, considered seriously. So that would be one. Do you want me to go through two others or you want to move forward? I'd love to hear the other two strategies. Yeah. Sure. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll try to talk shorter. I think I've been, uh, been overly empowered by your, your statement that I should feel free to go very deep. <laughs> no, I like to no, go deep. We want you to go deep. That's why you're here. I feel, I feel like I'm rambling for a long time, but I'll, uh, I'll try to be a little more succinct here. So, 
so a second thing that you know that I, I think is is exciting at Bridgewater is they you know they, I mentioned they have this this principle that no one has the right to hold a critical opinion without speaking up about it, and that's the opposite of what I've seen in most workplaces where if you have a critical opinion you have no right to speak up about it, but the challenge is to make that real, and the way that Bridgewater has done it is they've actually expanded their performance evaluations to include you get rated on whether you are challenging your boss and, you know, sort of asserting your viewpoint, you know, raising critical, you know, perspectives, even if they might, what they, they have a term for this actually, which is something, it's, it's something like rubbing salt on the wound. And I think that, actually, I can say that more clearly. I will say they, they basically evaluate you on whether you're fighting for right, even when other people disagree. You know, are, are you willing to poke the bear a little bit <laughs> if there's a good reason to do it? And I think we could, we could all do that, right? When we, when we give people feedback, why not sit down with them and say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you this feedback. I just wanted to let you know, one of the things I really value is, you know, people being willing to disagree with me. Or when we start working with new colleagues to, you know, to, to stay, say right off the bat, hey, you know what, you know, one of my favorite features of a collaboration is, you know, is when somebody challenges my, my assumptions and my beliefs respectfully and thoughtfully. And, you know, let's, let's actually make that part of the way we evaluate the quality of our relationship is, are we having good, healthy debate? And then the, the last thing that, you know, that I think is, is pretty actionable for, for anybody from Bridgewater is they ask you to, to opt in if you want feedback. And they say, look, we, you know, we, we, don't, we don't want to work with somebody who says, you know, this, this process is not for me. And we think you're going to take it a lot better if, if you've decided you want it. And I think so often when we have feedback conversations, we don't do that, right? We just, we, we're, we're so nervous about the discussion or we're feeling guilty about hurting somebody's feelings that, you know, we just rip off the bandaid and get it over with as opposed to, you know, sort of opening the conversation by saying, you know, I, I noticed a few things and, you know, I was wondering if, if you wanted a few, you know, a few thoughts or, you know, I'm, I'm trying to give more feedback to the people who, you know, whose work I really value. And, you know, I've been told I don't give enough critical feedback. So, you know, I've been trying hard to come up with some, you know, if, if you're interested, you know, happy to have that discussion and I'd love to hear your feedback too. And, you know, I think just initiating that opt-in process is something we can do every time we, we give feedback and for that matter, every time we receive it too. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? 
Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hiring the right person takes time. Time that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire, because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want, and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. How does a place like Bridgewater avoid almost a sort of paralysis by spending so much time arguing and debating and, you know, figuring out who's right, who's wrong, all these kind of pieces of the puzzle. Well, I think that, you know, they, they believe that <laughs> it's funny. Bridgewater is a place where, you know, I think a lot of people arrive there and they're really frustrated by what they perceive as inefficiency. I remember watching one meeting where Ray did about, I don't know, it must've been over an hour of a diagnosis of why a whiteboard was a few inches higher than, you know, than it was supposed to be. And, you know, it had been in the wrong spot. He had requested it be moved and then it wasn't in the right spot. And they, they spent a huge amount of time, you know, diagnosing why that decision went wrong. And I was looking at that thinking, are you people insane? Why, why would you spend all that time on that when you're managing $160 billion? And, you know, it's not, not like the, the placement of a whiteboard has any real consequences for your work. But you know, I have to say that as, as I was debating this back and forth with Ray, he, he did change my mind on it. And he changed my mind in part because one of the arguments he made reminded me of one of my favorite ideas in psychology. So the, the idea, this is uh, Walter Michel. Michel back in the 60s did this uh, <laughs> sort of devastating attack of personality psychology where he said, look, you know, the personality traits don't predict, predict behavior. You know, we have this whole science trying to assess how extroverted you are and, you know, how, how anxious or emotionally stable or neurotic you are. And, you know, when, when you actually measure these traits, they do a terrible job predicting, you know, really anything that matters in your life choices or your success at work. And so, you know, what, why do we have these? You know, we have a rich social psychology that says, you know, the situation influences a lot of behavior. And, you know, we're all kind of, we manage to be different people in different situations. And, you know, per personalities are not as important as we thought they were. 
And I have a mentor, Brian Little, who, who's referred to the aftermath as Michelle shock, because you know so many, so many personality psychologists all of a sudden felt like their life's work was, was under threat. And there were all sorts of, of updates to that. You know, first, we found out that personality is really bad at predicting one specific moment of behavior, but it's actually pretty good at predicting aggregated behaviors. So you know, if, if I wanted to know, Matt, you know, how organized you're going to be at 3 p.m. today, your personality is probably not going to tell me much about that. But if I wanted to know, on average, how organized you're going to be for the next month every day at 3 p.m., well, personality is a lot more useful then, right? Because we have a global trait, and that's going to predict a pattern of behavior, not a, you know, a specific instance of behavior, which is more like a blip. We, we also, uh, you know, we, we got a bunch of updates to the idea that, you know, actually <laughs> how much people fluctuate their behavior, that's a personality trait too. Mark Snyder called it self-monitoring. High self-monitors are the people who are constantly adapting to meet the expectations of the environment. Low self-monitors say, this is who I am, and I'm going to try to be the same person regardless of the circumstances. And they're driven more by, um, by their sort of internal compass than, than external cues. And so, you know, you start to break that down, and personality does a better job predicting the behaviors of low self-monitors than high self-monitors. But what's funny is, after, you know, decades of this debate, Walter Michel came back around and said, actually, I got this wrong. And, you know, it, it's not surprising that he, he came back with that, because he's the psychologist who, who did the pioneering experiments on the marshmallow test, where he found that the, you know, the kids who were able to delay the gratification of eating one marshmallow as toddlers in order to get two marshmallows about 15 minutes later, did better in school and had, you know, more stable relationships as much as a, a dozen or so years later. And so he was a believer in individual differences, right? That ability to delay gratification and to exercise self-control, that is a personality trait. And so, you know, he, he comes back around and he says, actually, we've been thinking about personality all wrong. We should really think about personality as a set of if-then statements, where we all have a bunch of then, which are, you know, our tendencies to be organized and disciplined, to be friendly, to be outgoing, you know, to be open-minded and so on. But those don't come out equally in every moment. There are different ifs that activate different thens, and we all have signatures. And so he said, we, if we really want to predict your behavior and, you know, understand what you're going to do in a given situation, we have to know what, what part of your personality that situation activates. And so that's a long detour away from Bridgewater, but this is where I landed with Ray. He said, look, you know, the reason that, that I'm going to go and analyze a whiteboard placement is because situations repeat over and over again. And this tiny little decision of adjusting the height of a whiteboard is actually a microcosm of our decision-making process. And there's something about that if that activated the wrong then in the group of people who were supposed to fix it. And so if I can get to the bottom of it and analyze it for a trivial decision, then maybe we can prevent that if-then pattern from repeating. We can either activate a different if, or we can find the people who have the right set of thens, you know, to handle that issue that required a lot of attention to detail. And I thought that was so interesting. And, you know, it really got me thinking about how, in fact, all of our work and all of our lives are just the same kinds of situations repeating over and over again. We don't see that because we tend to look at those situations through a microscope when we're in them. Right? We see all the idiosyncrasies of them. What we really should be doing is, is zooming out and looking at them through a telescope, which is when we, you know, we're able to see how this you know, one argument that I'm having with a coworker is actually you know, sort of triggered by the same fundamental disagreement that the last four were too. And so I think that you know, it seems like time wasted, but ultimately it's, it's time well spent 
if it can help you change a whole pattern of behavior. Longest answer ever. <laughs> no, that was great. You, you brought it all the way back around, which is which is awesome. And it's funny, you know, one of the things that that we talk a lot about on the show, and, and I'm a huge believer in, and, and, you know, people like you and Ray Dalio obviously have kind of helped shape that thinking as well. But is, is this idea that, you know, we I call it kind of the art of decision making, but basically just if you really hone your ability to make better decisions it cascades through everything in your life, you know, whether you're buying a car, a new house, business decisions, making an investment, et cetera. And I almost look at it as if you're harnessing the power of compounding by getting better at making decisions. It's it sort of cascades through everything that you do from that point forward. I love the idea of talking about that in terms of compounding. It's it's not it never occurred to me to to use that language for it. And I think that's exactly what you're doing. You're by investing in improving your decision making skills you're accumulating more and more interest on that, on that investment over time. And if you don't do it, if you just treat each situation as, you know, as completely different from all the others, then you really fail to learn anything from the last four that might apply to tomorrow's. Yeah, I think that I think that's a really, really good insight. But, you know, the, the other thing that I think is is great, and you kind of your analogy with personality was really relevant. But this whole notion, there's a lot of different systems where, you know, you might have a really kind of a large amount of randomness in the short term, but the the kind of outcome is really predictable in aggregate. If you look at everything from kind of poker, right, if you're making positive decisions, positive expected value decisions, in the short term, you might end up losing a bunch of hands or going broke. But over a long time horizon, that variance kind of evens out. If you look at something like weather, you know, it was kind of the the distinction between weather versus climate. It's really hard to predict sort of short term variations in the weather. But over time, over a longer time horizon, climate's actually extremely predictable. And so I think that's a great analogy and almost really a really relevant mental model to to think about as well. Yeah, it is. I think it's a mental model that we should all use more often to say, look, you know, any any time you have a model, you should be trying to predict the outcome in aggregate. Excuse me. You, you should be trying to predict an aggregate of the outcome, right? You want to predict a pattern of behavior. You want to predict, you know, what the climate is going to do over, you know, multiple years as opposed to multiple hours. I had a, so Brian Little, the personality psychologist mentioned earlier, he, you know, he, he said that he thinks that often one of the things that, that actually both frustrated me and, and hooked me on psychology was when, when Brian said, look, I think, you know, we have the wrong model often when we're, we're trying to think about what psychology is supposed to do. We're not doing physics. We're not doing, you know, sort of hard science. We're doing social science. And people are much, much more complicated in the sense that we don't operate by stable laws. Right? There's no law of gravity governing my decision-making process. And so he said he actually felt the best model for you know, our field would be meteorology, that you know, predicting human behavior is at least as hard as predicting the weather. If you look at all the, you know, the complex factors interacting to, you know, to affect it. And I hated that at first. But the more I thought about it, the more interesting it became as a puzzle. Right. If we could, if we could get a little bit better at predicting human behavior, then you know we could probably make fewer awful choices, and we could try to use our knowledge of psychology to to help people lead better lives. You know, I mean that that makes me think of of Charlie Munger, who's one of my all time favorite thinkers, and. You know, it's funny because you talk about and he writes a lot about kind of building this toolkit of mental models across a huge array of academic disciplines. And that sounds very kind of amorphous and, and ethereal, but that's a perfect example of really concretely bringing that to bear in the sense that if you study meteorology, there's actually some really practical applications for how to think about psychology and how to think about applying psychology to making better decisions and living your life. Yeah, it just can't tell me whether I should wear a raincoat today. 
That's right. So this is this is going to be kind of a hard segue, but I want to get into some other kind of really important concepts and, and talk about them briefly. You know, one of the things that, that you wrote about in Originals that I, that I think is to me kind of one of the really important kind of fundamental conclusions was this was this notion of output and how that kind of impacts originality and 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 creativity. Could you talk a little bit about how the power of having bad ideas and creating kind of prolific output is is really important in being an original? Yeah, there's a psychologist Dean Simonson who who put this idea on the map. So he studied, you know, he studied what he, what he calls creative productivity, which is basically, you know, both the, the quantity and the quality of, of creative output. But he doesn't just study it among ordinary people. He does these uh, historiographic analyses of eminent creative people throughout their lives and across centuries. So, you know, he's, he studied Shakespeare and Edison and Picasso and compared them to their peers to try to figure out what makes them different. And he had this this finding that, sort of knocked me out of my chair when I first read it. I, uh, I, was, I was reading his research, and he, he said in a nutshell that the, the more bad ideas you have, the more creative you are. <laughs> I read that, and I thought, what? Like, how could this be true? I thought, you know, I always had this vision of creative people as dreaming up their masterpiece and then going and executing on it. And, you know, not, not really tinkering with, with a bunch of other possibilities, right? They... You know, like it's it's hard to imagine, you know, that that Shakespeare didn't immediately know Romeo and Juliet or Hamlet, you know, as as he envisioned it, or you know, the moment it struck him that he didn't know that's the one. But what, what Simonson shows very clearly in his data, and and now we have experiments also showing that it's true for ordinary people, not not just sort of outlier original thinkers, is that a huge part of creativity is is the volume of ideas that you generate. And, you know, part of that is because we're too close to our own ideas to judge them accurately. There's one of the, one of the studies that, that Simonson sort of launched and, and Aaron Cosbelt and others have followed up on is Beethoven as a self-critic. So you have roughly 70 of Beethoven's compositions where he actually wrote letters to people who knew him well, like his friends and contemporaries, evaluating his own work. And so you got a sense of, of what kind of self-critic he was. And he committed lots of false positives where you know, he, he thought a composition was brilliant and the experts really didn't think it was particularly great. And then he also committed plenty of, self ne- of false negatives, where he said, you know, I'm, I'm really not happy with this work. And you know, it became a classic. And so you, know, you, you see from, from that work and from lots of, of subsequent research that, you know, that, that we are often too close to our own ideas to judge them, just like we're, we're too close to our own minds sometimes to see them clearly. And so, you know, you need lots of ideas just because you can't trust your own judgment. You also need lots of ideas because your first idea is rarely your best idea. The, the first idea that you have is, is usually the easiest one to think of. And it's either sort of a rare eureka moment or it's something that's relatively simple and obvious. And so you want those second, third, and fourth thoughts. And, you know, Simonton was able to show this between creators. So if you look at Beethoven, Bach, and Mozart, one of the things that differentiates them from their peers is they produced, you know, not just a few more, but hundreds more compositions, you know, into the six and seven hundred range. And, and at least in Bach's case, I think about a thousand when, you know, most of their peers were, were in the sort of below a hundred range. And there's a really nice linear relationship between number of compositions that you do in a lifetime and your eventual greatness. And, you know, that I think that's because the, the more of those variations you run, the more experiments you try, 
the more likely you are to stumble onto something that, that's truly original. And we see this in, you know, in all kinds of domains. So a couple of colleagues, Christian Turvish and, and Carl Ulrich, who studied people trying to create new products. And they looked at these innovation tournaments where you just have people submit ideas and then peers and subject matter experts vote on them. And the question is, you know, which of them are most promising? And then you advance them to the next round and eventually bet on some ideas. And they found that, you know, a typical brainstorming session might produce 10 to 20 ideas, but you don't max out on quality and, and originality until you have about 200 ideas on the table, which is, you know, why you, you see that when Pixar makes a movie like Cars, they will consider about 500 scripts. It's why you'll see that when, a, when Fisher Price makes a toy, They'll consider about 4,000 concepts before honing in on a final 12. You just you need a very, very, very big haystack to have a better shot at finding a needle. You know, I love the the kind of example from Beethoven. And, and I think Simonton uh, wrote about this, this similar corollary of that idea, which is basically that even the most creative and successful people, these kind of creative geniuses, etc., had essentially zero predictive ability to determine whether their next kind of project would succeed or not which I just found fascinating. Yeah, and that, you know, that, that turns out to be an individual difference too, right? So some people turn out to be more accurate self-critics than others, but no one is anywhere near perfect. And I have a former student, Justin Berg, who, who wanted to follow up on that and figure out how we can all improve our creative forecasting skills. So he studied circus artists, think Cirque du Soleil. He got over 100 of them to submit videos of brand new acts that had never been seen before. And then he had different groups rate them actually had them rank them. So the groups got to watch a bunch of different videos, rank them from best to worst. And then he sent them out to over 13,000 audience members. And not only had the audiences evaluate them, he also had the audiences donate their own money if they wanted to, to the performers as a, an indication of, you know, would, would you pay to see this person, you know, in action? And he found that, you know, the worst judges of, of the performances were the circus artists themselves judging their own acts. You know, they, they, would, they would say things like, well, this is, this is my act. How could it not be amazing? And, you know, they, they just, it was just too easy for them to fall in love with their own work. But then he went to managers. They're the gatekeepers. It's their job to pick ideas. And he found that they were almost as bad as the circus performers themselves. And they were bad for the opposite reason. Instead of being too positive, they tended to be too negative. So especially on the truly original ideas, they were, they were, un, they were, they were disproportionately likely to reject the most promising, most novel ideas. And I think that that seems to happen for two reasons. One is skewed incentives. You know, if you bet on a bad idea, everyone will know, and it could embarrass your career. Whereas if you reject a good idea, no one will ever find out. And so, you know, at some level, you say, all right, you know, am I going to stick a neck out for my neck out for an unproven idea? Or am I going to play it safe and just, you know, pass up this, this weird idea? The other thing that happened to managers was they tended to build up prototypes through years of experience. And so they would say, all right, when I see a new idea, I'm going to compare it to all the ideas that have worked before. And the more different it was, the more likely they were to reject. But that doesn't make any sense. If you're trying to be original, what's been successful in the past is at best irrelevant. And it might even be negatively correlated with what's going to work tomorrow, which is why, you know, you see examples like Seinfeld and Harry Potter getting rejected by industry executives because, you know, you can't make a sitcom about nothing where no one likes any of the characters. You can't write a children's book that, that, that's that long. And it turns out that, you know, the, the people deepest in the industry are the most blind to, you know, ways that you can deviate from the prototype. And so then Justin wanted to know, well, who can you trust? If you can't trust yourself and you can't trust your boss, who do you go to? 
and he found a third group that, that was excellent at creative forecasting, which was creative peers, circus artists judging each other's ideas. And they, they had this great sort of distance. So they could tell you, you know, Matt, that act where you dress up like a clown, don't do that. No one likes clowns, which is, which is actually a data point in the study. Clowns are universally hated. But there's also, you know, the, the flip of that, which is unlike the managers, you know, these creative peers are really invested in seeing new ideas take off. And so instead of looking at an idea and saying, Ew, that's, that's weird, they would look at it and say, huh, that's weird. And they were much more likely to give it a chance. One, actually, two, two quick things that Justin discovered, which I think are really powerful, is one, you can get other people, if your boss is not open to ideas, you can open your boss's mind. Before your boss judges other people's ideas, just have your boss spend five minutes brainstorming him or herself. And that five minutes of brainstorming is enough to take your boss out of sort of an evaluative mindset where you know, they're looking for reasons to say no and into a more open, creative mindset where they're looking for reasons to say, maybe. And then the other thing is, Justin wanted to improve people's judgment of their own ideas. So one, one of his experiments, he had people make a, they generated 10 to 15 ideas, and then they had to rank them from favorite to least favorite. And he found that your most promising idea is not on average the one you rank first, it's the one you rank second. That first idea is the one that you are so passionate about that you just can't see it clearly. Whereas idea number two, you have a little bit more distance, a little more objectivity, and you're more likely to recognize the flaws, but also have enough enthusiasm about the idea to try to fix the flaws. And so, you know, I realize that some people are probably going to try to game the system and say, wait, I'm just going to take my favorite idea and call it my second favorite, and then I'll be good. And that doesn't work. But I think there's something to be said for, you know, your, your next favorite idea as, uh, as one that has a lot of potential. What would be one piece of homework that you would give as kind of a concrete action step for listeners to implement some of the things we've talked about today? Oh, I think if I were going to give one piece of homework, I, I would say start by evaluating your challenge network. So think about the people that have given you the best critical feedback throughout your career or throughout your life and ask yourself, okay, first, who are those people? And then secondly, how do I build in a regular system of, you know, engaging them to, to benefit from their criticism, you know, knowing that, that I trust the quality of their feedback and that I believe, you know, they care about helping me improve. You know, I guess my, my version of this is whenever I, I write an article, I have my, my challenge network that I send it to for feedback. And there are four or five people that are, are sort of go-to sources. And then, you know, I, I know they will tell me what arguments don't make sense, what ideas are not interesting. But I also know that, you know, they, they care about helping me, me write better, better articles. And so, you know, they'll, they'll also say, you know, in that last paragraph, there's actually a gem here, and you should have written the whole article about it. And then I, you know, I have my work cut out for me. But I think if, if you identify your challenge network, and then you create a system or a process for engaging them regularly for feedback, you, you will become less defensive and more open, and you'll also get better information. And where can listeners find you and your work online? It's, it's kind of you to ask for, for anyone who's motivated to do that at adamgrant.net. I have everything I've ever published up there. You can download lots of articles and, and TED Talks. And I, I do a, a free monthly newsletter called Granted on Work and Psychology, where uh, I answer reader questions. And then I also share some of my favorite articles of the month. And, uh, and then I guess uh, for anybody who's into podcasts, which I suspect is everyone here, <laughs> 
for uh, for people who are excited to add more podcasts to their their listening schedule, Work Life is now available everywhere you get a podcast. It's uh, just like all the good ones, free. Well, Adam, thank you so much for coming on the show. Incredible insights, wisdom, so many things that, that I would have loved to go deeper on, but so much valuable information and really, really appreciate your time and your insights. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you for asking such interesting and thought-provoking questions. And I really will work hard to cut my answers in half next time. All right, cool. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created the show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or If you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success.